0: Hello everyone,
1: and welcome back to another episode of the Reading Party podcast with Megan and Lexi. This episode continues our season looking at stories inspired by or set in ancient Egypt. Some of the material includes themes of violence or sexual assault. It is not suitable for under-18s. We hope you have your favourite beverages and snacks ready to go, because we've got our teas and are ready to start spilling the tea on our latest ancient story. everyone welcome back to reading party podcast this is season two and we are talking about the 2016 movie gods of egypt which i didn't actually see when it came out i wanted to and didn't so i am very happy that i finally was given the necessary kick we will get into my thoughts on the movie shortly but we are joined by the wonderful marissa who is our guest host today marissa welcome thank you for joining us
0: thank you for having me
1: I know it's a delight. Could you just give a brief introduction, who you are, what you do, and what your specialism is?
0: Absolutely. So my name is Marissa Stevens, and I am an Egyptologist based at UCLA. I got my PhD from UCLA in 2018, and I'm still there currently as the assistant director of the Portavood Center for the Study of the Iranian world. And that's a center that focuses on ancient Persia. So I get to do a lot of work connecting Egypt to the broader ancient Near East, in particular, ancient Persia, uh, to see how they interact with one another, influence one another culturally, ideologically, politically. And it's been a really fascinating five years working for the center and working on that corpus of material of late period Egypt. I have to say professionally, I love a little bit of
1: interdisciplinary work. I think it's really exciting and really important. And I'm always thrilled when we have people who, who kind of focus on that area. So I think I was talking to Lexi again, and I think
0: she said that your
1: dissertation for your PhD was on the book of the dead.
0: Yes. I worked on funerary papyri particularly of the 21st dynasty, which is a really interesting period for that subject matter because it's where the priests kind of took hold of all of that religious material and took it away from the earlier royal usage and kind of co-opted it and, and retooled it a little bit for their own purposes.
1: And I feel like this has done something very, very similar and taken hold of Egyptian mythology and beliefs around death and just kind of run with it, which, you know, massive admiration for them for doing what they did. Lexi, before I jump into my little summary, do you have thoughts you want to share?
2: the only thing i was saying before we started recording here was this is definitely the movie where you get to weigh the does the good acting come first or the good narrative come first this film is packed full of a-listers and then you're like oh god what did they do so jeffrey rush is in it and
1: nicolaj coster waldo gerard butler And Boswick Chadman, who I have to say is my favorite character in this whole experience.
2: I miss him because he's no longer here with us. So then I was like, oh, I'm so sad. So sad. But we have so many things I'm sure we can get into. So yes, Megan, why don't you give us your fun little summary of what happened
1: in this film? So the film is narrated by a, a young man called Beck, who is a thief, essentially. We don't know where he came from, what he does professionally. He just wanders around stealing shit. Fair enough, at least he's honest about it. And his woman, is she a wife? Is she a girlfriend? Who the hell knows? She's just referred to as his woman. She does have a name. Her name is Zaya, but I think her name is used far less frequently than just Bex woman, which is a delightful experience. So it takes place in this like mythological world, mythological time really before Actual time begins and gods are roaming the earth, and it's in Egypt, obviously. And because it's this ahistorical mythological setting you've got the most amazing cgi set it's beautiful it's amazing it's very loosely based on egyptian monuments and there are some weird giant metal flower things which i had never seen they were stunning no idea what they were doing but they were stunning so the gods rule the earth or at least they rule egypt because apparently there's no one else living anywhere else it's just egypt and the whole movie the plot is horus his revenge quest, because Set comes in during Horus' coronation and he kills Osiris and he blinds Horus and is like, ha 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 ha, I am now going to be the big bad king of the whole world. And by the way, you can't get into the afterlife now unless you're super duper wealthy, which is a a plot point that I don't know why it was put in. I don't see how Set actually benefits from this. Maybe we can discuss that later. It seems a little odd so. Everyone is enslaved, essentially, and Beck's woman is taken by the grand architect who builds this massive obelisk, which essentially reaches into the sky and is supposed to wow Ra, because Set is nothing if not suffering from daddy issues and just wants his father's approval. So, of course, he enslaves the whole of humanity, destroys the underworld, and builds this giant penis. Which was, sorry, I'm an obelisk, which was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And Beck steals one of Horace's eyes, goes find Horace. His woman Zaya dies at some point, very early on in the movie, because women have no place except for. Sorry, I'm in a bit of a feminist kick at the moment. They have no point except to advance the plot and to give the men something to fight for and fight over. So Horace agrees that he will revive Zaya if Beck helps him steal his other eye back. The whole plot is kind of following these two men on their bromance adventure journey to find Horus's eye and defeat Seth. So Seth lets loose Apophis and is trying to command him to like, eat the whole of the earth. And I don't, I don't know why, but he was. And eventually Horus prevails and kills Seth and peace and justice are restored to Egypt and Ra actually isn't dead. Seth just like, knocked him out super bad and left him floating in space. Yeah, the whole spaceship Thing. interesting likes it very interesting and Horace is crown king and it's all merry and good and Beck and Zaya are both brought back to life and Beck is now magically chief advisor to the king of Egypt and we also have Hathor who I haven't talked about <laughs> at all and she's a pretty cool character I enjoyed her very much but she gets captured by underworld demons toward the end of the movie And this one ends with Horace flying off to free her from the demons. And I assume maybe they were trying to set up a sequel. I don't know. But the film cost a total of 140 million to film and they only made 150.7 million. So in movie terms, that was a massive flop and I do not think we'll be making a sequel so i
2: can't imagine them making this thinking they'll get a sequel right like, They gotta know it's bad bad i don't know there's like good reception on the right and then there's bad reception on the left i would so clearly just shove it into the leftward box they were going for the 300 vibe but the bad one where it's just a bunch of like metal creatures
1: i liked the transformer god thing the gods instead of being jackal-headed humans like you see in tomb paintings are humanoid Very, very tall, but humanoid. And then they have this anime-esque magical transformation sequence where their bodies are covered in gold armor and their heads transform
0: into whatever animal and they grow wings. And it was super cool. I very much enjoyed that. Speaks to, you know, like the different facets or elements of every Egyptian deity. So they're often depicted in different ways, right? In tomb representations, temple representations, sometimes they are human headed, sometimes they're animal headed, sometimes they're completely animal. So I liked how it spoke to that. And the fact that they were all bigger than the humans, I thought that that was also really well done in that it picked up on a nuance of Egyptian art where the more important characters are always depicted as larger. And so that made sense that the class of gods would be physically larger than humans. They took that very literally, but I thought it was very creative.
1: That actually answers one of the questions I had for you, which was, is it anachronistic to have the gods shifting between these forms or or does it actually map onto what we see in Egyptian religion?
0: No, it definitely does. You know, all Egyptian deities had multiple ways of being represented in art styles and and some of that maybe is by virtue of whether it was a statue or a wall relief so 2D versus 3D some types of representation maybe are easier for one form over another but they all had these different qualities that were kind of represented through the various ways they could be depicted physically
2: I want to get into narrative a bit. Marissa, it's based off of ostensibly the myth of Horace and Seth, but how much does this differ from that? Or how much do they actually get
0: right? They very loosely get right some of the broader themes. But the tale of Horace and Seth, the myth, or the contendings of Horus and Seth all of these are are titles of essentially the same myth that is preserved to us from you know ancient egyptian literary tales that talk about how Seth wanted the throne from Osiris it wasn't a coronation of Horus but it was a party Horus had not yet been born and there was this party all the gods were invited Seth brings this ornate box you know covered in jewels and precious stones And he says to all of the gods, whoever can fit in this box will get to keep it as a gift. And so one by one, all of the gods try to fit inside this box. It is specifically made for Osiris. And so when he gets in, Seth slams the lid shut, nails it shut, throws him in the river. Osiris drowns. There's various parts to the myth where Osiris is able to be revived. There's many different murder attempts. And the one that Osiris doesn't survive is when his body is chopped up and it is incomplete. And even though Isis collects a lot of the pieces, he can't be revived because the penis is still missing. But she finds a substitute wooden penis and she's able to impregnate herself with Horus. And that's where Horus comes in. He is raised in secret in the Delta Marshes. And then when he's grown, he avenges this era of seclusion of Horus, right? And then he comes back later when he's ready to avenge the throne. So then it sort of deviates at that point even more from the myth where Horace and Seth are now essentially debating one another in front of a tribunal of gods and you get a lot of monologues about the nature of kingship and why one is more suited than the other. And all of the gods are divided on this and they can't decide, is inheritance to the eldest son important or are there other characteristics that are important, right? And and a lot of societies that have a notion of hereditary monarchy have those discussions, but what is most important? Is it hereditary? Is it certain leadership attributes? And interspersed between all of this, because the gods can't decide, they say, okay, well, let's do a physical challenge. And in one, they have to turn into hippos and battle in the Nile. Then there's a boat race. The third is is quite shocking where they essentially say, whoever can rape the other first should get to be king. So some of these seem fairly nonsensical to us, but they do all kind of speak to various attributes that ostensibly were viewed as important in terms of power and fertility and all of this to the Egyptians. And then in the end, Horus does seem to win these tasks, although he essentially cheats with every task in some way. And some gods celebrate his creativity and others say, no, this was not fair. But then, in the end of this myth, a god that has not been present – actually, a goddess, Neith, who has not been present at any of these proceedings, finally shows up in the 11th hour and essentially says, I don't know what all of you have been doing, but this is nonsense. And let me tell you what true kingship means. And she has this speech about how it should be hereditary, it should go to the sun. It kind of sets up primogeniture in Egypt. And... All of the gods accept her wisdom and say, okay, yes, for these reasons, Horus should be the king. And that's kind of how the myth ends. How closely does the characterization of set
1: in the movie as this power-hungry megalomaniac with severe daddy issues, does that map at all onto the characterization of set that we have from the ancient world? I would
0: say it does. The, the one caveat is I don't think the ancient Egyptians would view those as negative traits. They would not cast those traits in a villain role, even though our interpretation of their myth kind of casts him as the antagonist. And in ways he, he certainly is, right? Because he's the one that's causing all of the drama. But the Egyptians would view those qualities as absolutely necessary in some way to have in the universe. So all of the gods represent attributes that are inherently needed to maintain the structure and the fabric of the universe. So this chaotic energy, this disruptive energy, it is needed. It's needed in in certain doses that keep things balanced, but these are also qualities to be celebrated in a a, a cautious way. And is that... any kind of precedent
1: for the changes he makes to the afterlife, like having to have material wealth in order to gain access? Or is that just something that was made up for the film?
0: I don't think it was made up for the film. What we do know is the conception of the afterlife did change throughout Egyptian history. In the Old Kingdom, it was generally believed that really only the king had an afterlife. If you worked the king, there are sort of ways to kind of squeeze yourself in. If you were a servant to the king, you could perhaps kind of expect to perform those duties for him, still in the afterlife, retain your same kind of social role. But there wasn't an afterlife for you. You couldn't get in by virtue of anybody else other than your king. And it was kind of up to your king and that changed. And and some scholars call it the democratization of the afterlife. That's kind of a problematic term for many reasons, right? Just in terms of democracy, being a very Western concept and and whether or not that was actually true, there was never necessarily like a buy your way in system. I, I think maybe though. That could be a popular misunderstanding because of just the wealth that we often find in intact tombs. right? What we know people are putting into their tombs is quite rich in some cases. And so you think, is this somehow needed, this wealth needed to get in? But no, the concept of the afterlife does change. And then, you know, regular individuals, could achieve an afterlife on their own, by their own merit, the concept of the weighing of the heart, right? That is is clear from the Book of the Dead. That is an accurate representation in that the, the scales with the feather and the heart. One common misconception, though, is that the heart has to be lighter than the feather. It actually just has to be equal in weight to the feather, right? I mean, that would be considered a balanced life lived. But it has nothing to do with being able to pay your way. Now, you could kind of magically maybe enter the afterlife. We have a lot of spells from the Book of the Dead that essentially say, heart, be quiet. I know this magic spell that is going to encase my heart so that it does not speak. It does not reveal my secrets. And when it is weighed, it will not let the gods know all that I have done. And so if you could afford a book of the dead, if you knew the proper practitioners that could provide you with those spells, those heart amulets, however, what whatever form it's going to take, right? So in that sense, maybe there's a little bit of buying your way in and that if you were the person that had access and the funds to include that type of material in your burial, but that's about as far as we could take it.
2: It was quite odd because we did get, a few sequences in the underworld and there was that one poor lady i think she was like yeah i have nothing so she drops one sad silver ring or or something and she dissolves into the spinning whatever afterlife portal in a film that is not afraid to show monsters like monster monsters they don't have the devourer souls. And I was real sad because this was an opportunity to showcase Egyptian mythology and real elements. So I found it really odd that they didn't have that. But then they did put elements like Apophis, which, as someone who just receives popular culture for Egypt and I'm not in the field, I would be more familiar with the devourer souls than Apophis. But then maybe that's just me. So I'm kind of curious because we saw there are other creatures included in the film, like the big snakes sequence chasing Beck. Do we have present? Were those actual, real mythological creatures, or, or is that just made up for the film?
1: Please tell me there were twin goddesses riding these giant, massive cobras because that was amazing.
0: There are twin goddesses that are represented as cobras, Wadjet and Nechbet, but those are the uraei that you see on on royal crowns. Most of the time, there's only one depicted, the little tiny cobra that sits on the forehead of the Egyptian king's crown. Tutankhamun is the one that is famous for having the double urea. In his case, one is a cobra and one is a vulture. Necbet is often represented as a vulture, but she could, in certain cases, be represented as, as a cobra as well. Those are meant to be protective deities for the king, right? The fact that like you have these two like fire-spitting serpents like right on the forehead of the king is meant to protect him as well as show his power and authority do we have any myths that describe them being giant serpents that ransack Egypt? No. But we have a lot of depictions of the underworld where there are these giant cobras and snakes that spit fire and are essentially meant to represent a sort of pits of hell concept, a place you don't want to be in the afterlife. You don't want to be in that portion of these snakes and serpents and everything. But then I also think maybe, and maybe I'm being too wishful thinking here, they were touching on the myth of the sun's eye, which is a point, and I feel like many religions have a story where the Creator God at some point regrets his decision on creating mankind. And so in this myth, Ra sends, it's normally Hathor, but in different versions of the myth, it could be Sekhmet, down in the form of like a lion to slaughter all of mankind. And then eventually he regrets his decision, has to call her back. There's of course problems with how to get her back because she's so dedicated to her mission, but eventually they do and some of mankind is spared. So it's one of those types of of stories that we, we see throughout many, many religions. So maybe they were touching on that kind of concept of the raging goddess. I was expecting your answer to be no, that was entirely made up,
1: but it does my soul good to know that yes, there are twin goddesses associated with cobras, and these cobras do in fact spit fire on occasion. That's a nice little creative touch that I enjoy. I wanted to ask about Hathor because she's not a goddess i know an awful lot about and she was the most prominent female deity in, in the movie and she's very sexy and sensual and seductive and she can command anyone to do anything as long as they're not already in love with someone which was interesting but i i don't know how the film hathor compares to what we see
0: in mythology hathor is as a seductress type goddess or having those types of powers, that's certainly not something that we know about her. Most Egyptian goddesses do have like two kind of sides to their same coin. One is a more nurturing mother or affectionate kind of goddess. And then on the flip side to that is sort of this raging protector and they can swap back and forth. So I think they kind of represented that with how that bracelet can control her emotion and her state of being a little bit between those two sides. And kind of when she doesn't have that bracelet on, that's when she can go a bit out of control or, or, you know, be taken away into this different realm and state of being. But as far as her connection to Horus is concerned, we do know that she was viewed as Horus's consort So, there's a very famous temple at Edfu that is dedicated to Horus as a falcon god in his falcon form. And then the sister temple to that is Dendra, which is dedicated to Hathor. And we know there were festivals where they would bring the statue of the goddess Hathor down to Edfu to visit Horus. And there would be all of this celebration over their connection that the two gods had. So we do know that there is a special connection between Horus and Hathor, but that's probably about as much as we can say about them as a pairing. And do you get this association with
1: the underworld and with the afterlife with Hathor?
0: Not overtly or in particular. A lot of the deities will show up in depictions of the afterlife in some way, whether they're leading the deceased to one of the gates of the afterlife, or shown in judgment scenes where you have a tribunal of gods watching the deceased. So it's not uncommon for Hathor, Isis, Nephthys, certainly Osiris, Anubis to show up in those scenes, but there's nothing that particularly stands out as as she needing to be there, having a critical role in those scenes.
2: Which makes their putting her as like the, the whole Mistress of the West, you can lead me to the Nine Gates of the Underworld is a strange insertion.
0: A lot of goddesses are fairly interchangeable, and a lot of goddesses do often have a Mistress of the West title, depending on how and where they're being referenced. But again, it's not necessarily a critical element, I would say, of Hathor, or any goddess in particular. That title is real and does exist for Hathor in certain scenarios.
2: It's interesting how much they're mixing certain elements they can pull and then put it in. And and it's interesting to see where they sprinkle it in to sort of fit what they need the film
0: to do. Sadly and interestingly, the Egyptians did that themselves when it came to goddesses. They saw goddesses as being relatively interchangeable in myth and in depictions, either you know tomb walls, papyri, temple spaces. Yes, they were all distinct individuals, but they could very easily be interchanged. You know, Sekhmet and Bastet, or Hathor, Isis, Nephtys. So, in that sense, the movie kind of got it right, this not being very distinct when it came to the characteristics of each individual goddess. I am enjoying hearing Marissa
1: explain some of the different points of the mythology. I feel like I'm appreciating more how the movie took things we have evidence for and used them and changed them around, like the mechanical gods changing, like transformation sequences. And I think later in the movie, you find that Seth has been essentially cutting bits out of other gods to make himself more powerful. I don't know if that's a deliberate callback to how he cut up Osiris into into, 14 different pieces, but if it is a deliberate callback, I think that's a really interesting way of including it. And it makes me sad that the story wasn't better, because it's beautifully shot, the CGI stuff is great, and the mythology is really interesting how they used it, but the story was... It made me sad.
2: I mean, it's weird, though, because when you deal with mythology, I feel like there's no lens of accuracy that you can really hold it up to. Because it's not trying to show real life, so mythology is not super accurate anyway. Although you have the mythological element, but then you do have some of the sequences that are not completely, because you do have Beck, which, mortal, and Zaya mortal. So... It delights me because I'm like, oh, this is a cute little buddy companion adventure thing romp through ostensibly just Egypt, but they could have done so much more with that. I don't know. I would have liked to see a more mortal element, I guess. So if you're gonna have mortals make do with them is kind of what I'm (laughs) saying. I don't know how you weave that in when basically your narrative revolves around a deity only fight. That made me a bit sad. But I did want to ask, when you do have the short sequences going up to the solar boat, which I did love, by the way, that they included, because I was like, hey, solar boat, cool, raw. He talks a lot about horse meeting the primordial waters, and he wants to fill up a flask because that is going to defeat Seth. What is the precedent in mythology for that? Could they destroy someone? Could they do other things?
0: The primordial waters of noon are everything and nothing all at the same time we we don't have any descriptions saying they have certain powers to do X y or Z but it's a fascinating concept where essentially there was nothingness and that nothingness to the Egyptians were these primordial waters of noon but but they had such generative energy that all of creation could essentially spring forth from them so in that, sense, I would assume those waters to be incredibly powerful. And if they could be harnessed by a god to defeat an enemy or to bring forth new life, I guess they could have those powers. I mean, again, the Egyptians didn't tell us that explicitly, but seems like a pretty creative modern interpretation of what those waters could potentially do. Also, was it a pretty good representation of Apophis? That's hard for me to assess because we have depictions of Apophis in funerary papyri, but he's a snake, a very large snake, but just like a normal looking large snake. So the giant worm with eight rows of rotating teeth and things like that. I mean, clearly that is not an ancient Egyptian depiction of Apophis. But I don't mind these types of modern interpretations. It works for the movie. I think think he is, again, Enst is obviously a villain or a creature that is being harnessed for evil purposes, but I don't like considering Apophis necessarily evil. Pophis is meant to represent essentially like the most chaotic force possible in the universe, and he is anti-creation. And so creation is not something that was a one-and-done concept for the Egyptians, where, okay, the world's created, we're done, we can put down our tools, And take a break. Creation was always perpetually happening. And so every night, Ra would need to battle Apophis, not kill him, never kill him, because he's a needed figure. He is needed for creation, but he needs to be subdued every night so that creation can perpetuate himself. If there is nothing to challenge creation, there's no progress forward or progress cyclically to allow creation to reinvent, to recreate itself. And so, Apophis is considered a very needed element in the universe. And then when Seth eventually, as his punishment for doing all this and challenging and trying to take the throne, Seth is the one that is placed on the prow of Ray's solar boat. And he has to be the one to battle Apophis every night. I find that to be probably one of the most beautiful concepts in Egyptian mythology, because you now have the two most chaotic forces in battle every single night to allow creation to continue in order to prevail. And it's only the negation of those two chaotic forces that really allows and perpetuates the good in creation
2: oh that's so cool that's so cool yeah. definitely did not know that i just love learning about egyptian mythology honestly maybe not from a weird hollywood bust megan you'll love this so when you have that great scene putting the parts together to make super seth i thought of maya dean's wrath goddess sing, and i was like oh my god it's like transformer kirby he's swallowing everyone and then comes out with their best attributes it's transformer kirby brought to screen it absolutely is it's perfect i love it if i was gonna market this movie i'd be like transformer kirby seth done just done i'm assuming that each of the, the things that he ripped off of the other gods had a reason What's interesting you want her wings
0: and his brain
2: and the other thing
0: It speaks to the best quality or attribute of every god. So Thoth is the god of wisdom. He's the brain you want, you know? So, like, he went through and took the best quality of every god, or almost, like, the power of every
2: god. I was a little confused, though, because after he takes them, did the gods poof out of existence? Did they just kind of stay powerless? They didn't really
0: explain that. I would assume they would stay powerless unless Seth actually killed them because, like, Horace's eyes. For him, the vision was the most important power that Horace had. And if you recall the very beginning in the coronation, when Horace and Seth are fighting the first time, they show, through the eyes of Horace, how he can see and how he was going to have the perfect shot at killing Seth at that very beginning, and then, like, a flash of light temporarily blinded him, and that's why he missed that shot at killing Seth, and so that was kind of the clue in that Horus's most special power is his vision and his sight. He took the most important power from every god to kind of make him infallible or, you know
2: just curious because yeah I realize like you see Horus is ostensibly fine when he's blinded not fine but like fine yeah but then like you have that scene when he rips out Thoth's brain he kind of collapses and then just doesn't move and then when he tears off Nephthys' wings she also falls down and doesn't move I don't know if she's like dead or passed out <laughs> the only person who seems to be okay really is Horace which I guess makes sense yeah if he's <laughs> supposed to be your hero
0: Horace, I think, makes a comment when a flying boat comes to take them back to the capital. He's like, ah, Nefty's boat. She's even helping us from the underworld. So it seems that altercation with Seth sent her to the underworld because she can't survive in this realm without her wings. But she was still able to send her boat, flying boat, to help them. So I don't know. Maybe they're existing kind of like in the world of the dead. I don't think they put that much thought into it, unfortunately.
2: They didn't. But then because you have the end when they're all happy and he does get his crown. You see half the gods revived. But then they're like, yeah. oh, so where's Osiris? Oh, no, he's dead. He, he's he gone. And then also his mother as well. Oh, yeah, she, she's gone too. And you're like, but that's Isis. So she shouldn't be gone. But apparently she is. So it's just weird how some of them you clearly saw them at the end. What distinguishes between dead and not dead, but okay, fine, whatever. I'll I'll go with it because they probably really didn't think that much into it. But you know what? The one thing I did also want to bring up, because it reminded me a lot of Odysseus Voyage to the Underworld, which I know, Megan, you're like, how? Why? That was so shit. I hated that. Because this also is a movie that lends itself to, and I don't know if it's because. Egyptian mythology might just be a good fit for it, but I found a lot of weird Christian narratives and parallels shoved onto it because you take a myth that is not but has all the elements because it presents a very morally uncomplicated narrative where it's like oh clearly good versus evil and we have helpers and we have bad people and then you have that contrast visually with the underworld scenes where it's very dark and gray and blue and sad and then you have egypt and it's for the most part beautiful and colorful and amazing and so there's that visual and tonal difference megan i feel like you're really good at spotting weird christian parallels just because of the work you do did you also find that it was trying to shove christian morality narratives in your face
1: a little bit i think especially right at the end when you have horus reinstating the do good to others as the primary means to get into the afterlife obviously that's something that's a a message i can get behind i think we should be nice to each other but if i was going to identify anything i think it would be that and also the very overt Fire association with Set and this pit of fiery doom that they want to put the waters of creation into, and then the fire breathing snakes, and then Set stole Ra's fire spear. I I don't think it was as overt as Odysseus' uh, voyage to the underworld because that just smacked you in the face with the Bible every five minutes. (laughs) i mean it's true we don't have a
2: hellfire cross in this one with a very christian name but no it was just interesting because as marissa's been explaining to us all the things we think were like bad quality bad 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 she's like no actually necessary the fact that the picture we got of egyptian mythology is very complicated and the fact that like instead of a straight up duel of good versus evil you killed my daddy so you're bad and I should be king. The fact that they had to go through all these contests because they actually don't know who should be king. I'm like that's that's very complicated. Now, I don't know how you show that in the hour and whatever movie. Fine, valid point, but it can be so much more complicated. So the fact that it was stripped to like you killed my father and you enslaved people and did all this. So therefore you are very bad and you are the devil figure and so I am good and it's like here is journey.
1: It was definitely a very black and white picture of Western moral values placed onto a mythological ancient Egypt with predominantly white actors, which is something that the movie's been criticized for heavily elsewhere. I definitely think, in that Western society is very often very Christian, and this movie is playing very heavily on those Western values. I, I think you've got the Christian sentiments coming through there. Definitely. And I think that the goodies versus the baddies in this was very, very black and white. I mean, more than I think Hollywood typically is set has no redeeming qualities they kind of try and shoehorn it in right at the end when he's confronting Ra and he says why was I never allowed to have children and I did all of this so you would love me daddy and you're obviously supposed to feel some kind of sympathy for him but I mean he's enslaved the whole of the human race by that point and there's nothing really there to sympathize with And Horace is unremittingly like good and positive. And he has this brief blip when he has his eyes stolen and he's not a terribly pleasant person, but his character development is almost a vertical line straight up. It takes 0.3 seconds for him to grow a backbone and then start thinking about other people. The intended character developments weren't terribly convincing. And you start with like a good guy and a bad guy and you end with a good guy and the bad guy. And there's very little in terms of gray shading in the middle.
2: It's not like a turn off necessarily, but it does color how I see it. I have a problem generally when you want to use something that's so very different from our own, and then you make no attempt to get at the heart of that in any other way than superficially. They had weird costuming choices. Set design was fine, I guess. I don't know. It's funny because I was realizing that when I think of movies about egypt normally you never get egypt in its like full splendor it's usually an egypt movie where egypt is falling apart and the pyramids are in ruin or the land is in ruin so it was kind of nice to see that sequence at the beginning and the end even though it actually looks more like some weird atlantis fantasy not egypt but sure you know odd design
0: choices abound it's definitely the disneyland of ancient egypt you know that's the disney-fied version so
2: yeah because actually disney never did anything with ancient egypt although dreamworks did with prince of egypt but even then egypt was in ruin so like there's no winning no winning at all it's kind of upsetting i don't know as an egyptologist does it upset you that you get no good accurate visual looks at ancient egypt because everything is kind of like already in ruin
0: to me the thing that is more upsetting is when the pyramids are in the background of every shot, even when you're clearly in Luxor or Aswan, these places are hundreds and hundreds of miles apart, right? So you can't see them. That is not the ubiquitous skyline is having pyramids in the background. So that to me is the worst offense possible. I guess it doesn't necessarily upset me when things are in ruin, if that is theoretically accurate, right? Because I think also a lot of people view Egypt as this very monolithic time and they don't realize how long pharaonic Egypt actually lasted. And so the pyramids probably were in ruin by the time you get to the New Kingdom, certainly by the late period, right? We are closer in time to the reign of Tutankhamun than he was to when the pyramids were built right there's more time in between the pyramids and tut than there are between tut and us right so that really puts things into perspective what did the pyramids look like when tutankhamun was was king you know they probably were already not in the best condition so i'm okay with those types of depictions if it does speak to a type of accuracy and maybe it does get the audience thinking about the longevity of that culture versus how much time it did actually spend you know, existing and developing and changing over time.
2: Well, one thing I also wanted to ask about was, so we get this great sequence at the Pyramid of Fire, which I can't believe that was a thing, but uh, Pyramid of Fire, but we get the Sphinx. Now, Mm -hmm. obviously we know Sphinx from the one in front of the pyramids of Giza. We generally associate Sphinxes with Egypt and popular culture, great, great, great. But this could just be because I had no egyptology classes in undergrad or before that at all but from what i remember is we had the visual sphinxes and and the idea of it from egypt but then you have from ancient greece you have the sort of you ask the sphinx the question and everyone kind of knows the famous question about the legs and it's you know man at every stage of evolution but they brought in the, the sphinx riddle here and it was and it was a different one as well it wasn't the question we were all expecting for Ancient Egypt, was there always the idea that you also had to play a riddle with the Sphinx there as well? And is that something that carried over to Greece
0: or that started in Greece? We have no evidence of that, whether a concept existed and we just have no record of it. Can't really say, but there's nothing to point to riddle or any type of communication really with a Sphinx The Sphinx was a representation of kingship and power. So you always have the Sphinx normally with the head of a Pharaoh. Shepsut has Sphinxes built with her image on them. Omenemhet III has a Sphinx in the Louvre. A lot of Kings would have themselves carved as a Sphinx. And I think that's because a lion is oftentimes associated as a symbol of kingship and power and authority and aggression, right? The King is meant to be a protector. And aggressor when needed for his people. And that's why they're normally wearing the Nemes headdress, right? Uh, Another symbol of royal authority. Oftentimes they have that Uraeus on their forehead, right? So this is clearly a connection to kingship and not to some like mystical riddle situation. So I think that's adopted later, probably by the Greeks, because we certainly have no reference of it from Egypt itself.
2: Which is interesting because I see a lot of sphinxes. It's funny. Every time I go to Greece, right, I see a lot of sphinxes. And it takes me a hot second to be like, no, no, no. This isn't just Egyptian. There were actual Greek sphinxes. And they're quite beautiful and stylistically very different. But it's interesting how like pop culture has changed perceptions, but also you want to keep perceptions the way that certain cultures develop them. So it's very interesting how, if I ask, you know, what is a Sphinx, what does it do to any random lay person? I feel like half the answers would be like, oh, they're Egyptian, right? It's like the thing in front of the pyramids. And then half the people would be like, oh, it's like the, the Greek one, right? Where you ask the riddle. It, it seems like where the movie is concerned, right? It's kind of borrowing from from both cultures then because you have Sphinx because Egypt, but also riddle, which is not. So it's it's interesting. And I like the idea of big, you know, face of person onto animal body you know we see these i'm megan knows i'm obsessed with lamassus i mean rightfully so lamassu are incredible i'm just sad like greece doesn't have some big thing where you have animal body and human head on it but you know i guess we're not we're not cool like that
1: (laughs) so we're going to start wrapping up in a minute but i wanted to ask you both who your most favorite
0: and least favorite characters were oh my gosh i always root for the villain when I watch movies, so I think I think I'd say I like Seth the best.
2: I mean, he's super um, hot, so he's got like that hot dark energy.
0: He, he, yeah, even how he is depicted. I mean,
2: that accent to kill for. I mean, Gerard Butler, um, man.
0: We don't know about least favorite.
2: I mean, you could always say someone odious like the Grand Vizier.
0: <laughs> you, you know what? Maybe maybe I will I will go with Horace as my least favorite, just because I didn't. I appreciated how they clearly depicted no god as being perfect, right? Because, you know, in Egyptian mythology, all the gods do have their flaws, right? They don't make perfect decisions. They don't always do the right thing. They aren't all-knowing and all-seeing, omnipresent. So they got that right about Horus. But I, I kind of feel like they didn't give him enough character flaw. I think he should have had more. So yeah, I'll, th- those will be my answers.
2: <laughs> valid, valid. Well, my MVP always is Hathor. And that's mostly because I love the actress who plays her. I think Elodie Young is amazing. Also, I just always have to point out that that her accent combination, she's French-British, so you can tell her accent is British with a hint of French. It's my like absolute favorite accent combination because i think it is
1: so easy on the ears so she's always my favorite i feel like i can probably pick out who your favorite characters are based on how sexy the accent is this is a recurring theme
2: yes you know how like the the auditory stuff is big for me but yes, so no i love her but also i just love because to me well i was also watching hercules the other day so she's like a Megara to me she's the sassy girl who's like I don't need no man because I survived, but like, it would be nice to have one, but I don't need one. So I really just love it. My, my favorite scene is always the one where they're being chased by the snakes. And then she's like, just shut up and stay out of my way. I'm going to save you here. And then she literally saves them by batting her eyelashes, which... I love that that's like a direct quote from the movie as well. So, for sure, she's my favorite. Least favorite. You know, I always kind of want to say Beck because he's annoying, but also I don't want to be seen as ragging on a mortal because he's one of two. So, that's kind of terrible. So, I feel like I shouldn't pick him, even though he's annoying. Yeah, I mean, there's so many ones that are just bad anyway, but I'm just going to say Beck. I know what they're trying to do with him, but he just ends up being like whiny and annoying. And they, he tries to go for the sassy sidekick remarks. To me, he's written just like a bad soccer, like a really bad soccer. What about you, Megan?
1: I was going to say, if you don't pick Beck for your least favorite, then I absolutely will. I just found him really irritating. Just so irritating. I mean, I, I see what they were trying to do and he's got all of these little quips and asides, but it's just not funny. So yes, Beck is absolutely least favorite. I think my most favorite is Throth. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. The God of Wisdom, who was Chadwick Boseman, because he was funny and he was justifiably sassy. And I loved that the impetus for getting him to the Sphinx is, oh, I'll go and I'll just tell the Sphinx. The God of Wisdom didn't think he'd be able to answer the question. And he's like, did you really think that would work? It's absolutely worked. Let's go. I enjoyed him very much. I thought he was very amusing. And I was sad and a little surprised when Set removed his brain. That was not an expected event, and then kind of put it in his own Transformer skull. I guess one of my last questions is, as an Egyptologist, would you recommend this
2: to other people?
0: I know most of my comments sounded slightly positive throughout the whole episode, you know, where I'm like, actually, they do a horrible job at interpreting this or that. And maybe, maybe that's me. You know, when you have such a wealth of knowledge from Egypt, it's, it's easy to kind of find something, some kernel of truth and, and maybe ignore everything else that, that is wild interpretation, that is inaccurate. I'll always recommend a movie about Egypt just because I love Egypt. I think other people should love it too. And if this is your gateway in, then that is awesome. But if you're looking for historical accuracy, if you're looking to learn something, I don't think you're necessarily gonna learn it by watching this movie. But if you're looking for a good time, if you're looking for some fun battle scenes that are completely unrealistic with superpowers and you know crazy demons and stuff like that, then go for it. It'll be a good time.
2: I think I always put this movie in the category of so
0: bad, it's good. And if you do watch it, I have one Easter egg for you to look for. And that is in the first scene where they find Thoth and he is compiling his encyclopedia of everything. And you see him holding a head of lettuce and being like, well, what is the meaning of lettuce? And like, what are its essential qualities? And he's pondering over this. And that is a huge Easter egg for Egyptologists. It's hilarious because in the original contendings of Horace and Seth, I mentioned the third challenge is this strange rape Challenge. And I said that Horus essentially finds a way to cheat at every challenge. And he doesn't want to rape his uncle, which I guess is a redeeming quality for him. And so instead, he has Isis help him in placing his semen inside a head of lettuce because. They asked Seth's gardener, what does Seth eat for breakfast every day? And the gardener says, Every day he takes a morning walk through the garden and he plucks a head of lettuce and he just chows down on this head of lettuce. And so they said, Okay, this is this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna hide it there, and then he's going to ingest this semen. And then we can tell all the gods, you know, my semen is inside Seth, and that will not be a lie. Right, that will be absolutely true, and and so that's what happens. So they announce to the gods, and and of course Seth objects, and he says, "Absolutely not! I know for a fact it's not there." And they ask Thoth to magically prove it, and so Thoth does this spell, and this blob of semen comes out from the top of Seth's head, and and to to prove that that it was inside him. And as a side note. They didn't know what to do with this floating ball of semen, so Thoth sent it into the sky and created the moon. So, anytime you eat a Caesar salad now or look up at the night sky, I want you to think of Egyptian mythology.
2: I really thought that was kind of nonsense, but like I thought they put it in there as a bit of comedy. Let's have the all-powerful, wise god looking at you know an artifact when he's like, "Yes, I collected all the 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 knowledge and whatever." And then I do love his line where he's holding it. And he's like. It's knowledge. It's truth. It's lettuce.
0: Most people probably just think they picked the most random object for him to be obsessing over, you know, just as a bit of comic relief. But And it's comic relief for Egyptologists, but in a completely different sense, because that is clearly a nod to the original myth that shows that the writers of this movie did, in fact, do their research and picked a very, very tiny element of the myth to throw in there as an Easter.
2: I think it'd be optimistic to think that the writers did the researchers probably, if they had any sort of historical consultant, they were probably like, you wanted something hilarious and funny, but also kind of accurate. Here, take this. And then they were probably like, good enough. That sounds crazy.
1: But maybe Uh, the writers did their research. uh,
2: Megan, any final thoughts?
1: No, just that uh, I have heard that myth before and I completely not twigged that that's what they were doing with the lettuce and thoth. So that was beautiful beautiful love it but would you recommend it to other people only if they want an awful film to watch and laugh at yes if you want a good movie i'm not i'm not going to recommend this even a little bit
2: drunk at 3 a.m or with friends kind of like voyage to the underworld it's
1: one it's one of those deals yeah okay Well, anyway,
2: thanks for joining us, Marissa. This has been super fun, super informative. I hope that other people learned as much. So join us next week for another episode of Reading Party Podcast. Bye! Hey, thanks for listening! Don't forget to leave us a review, and you can also follow us on social media at The Reading Party Podcast. If you'd like to leave us a book or movie suggestion, then email us at thereadingpartypod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. See you next week!